I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Fundamental to understanding the entire Bible is realizing what happened when sin entered the world. And we talk about this often. When sin entered the world, what happened wasn't just that our relationship with God was broken and so that we need to be reconciled to God. We talk about this in New Community all the time. The entire creation, all facet of creation was marred by sin and began disintegrating. The effect of sin entering the world is total disintegration of every area of creation. Do you feel it? Do you see it? The word groaning is a very, very strong word. If you're, if you're taking notes, you might want to underline that. The gro- it expresses a cry. It expresses a painful cry of someone who is actually looking at death. And there are two examples. One, the, the word that Paul actually uses, it's a woman who's in labor and she's giving birth and she's groaning. And it's not just the pain of giving birth to a child. You're talking about a time and context in which giving birth to a child sometimes, many times, resulted in death. And so it's a woman who's giving birth to a child, possibly knowing that she's going to die while giving birth to this child. Another example, this word was used in Greek. Imagine a battle scene, one of these movies. Battle's been fought between thousands of people, and there's smoke in the air. And you're walking through this battlefield after battle's been fought, and what do you hear? Oh, 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 oh. You hear groaning of warriors, groaning of warriors on the battlefield, are possibly facing death. It's a death cry. It's a death cry of a warrior. It's a death cry of a woman who is in labor. That's what the word literally means. And Paul uses that word and he says, every single creation is, oh, oh, it's groaning. The, this world, this material world, not just us, it's groaning. Why? Paul says it's in bondage to decay and frustration. Here's something you need to know. Everything in the world is irreversibly, inevitably, slowly decaying, disintegrating, dying. Everything in the world, all the creation, the Bible says, is groaning. It's wearing out, wearing down, giving out. Everything in the universe. You've heard of the term second, the law of second law of thermodynamics. Everything in the world. The universe is spending more energy than it's creating. It's deteriorating. It's running down. Let me give you some examples of how we see this in creation. This past week, my wife and I hosted 70, 80 volunteers to say thank you. We ordered a bunch of food. We forgot that we left a tray of corn and butter in our oven for 10 days. 10 days. We must either have an amazing oven or our smell, smell factors in our entire family is gone. How do 
you not smell? How do you not smell? Ten days of rotting corn. But anyway, my wife opened the oven, and can you imagine? I was literally like two miles away, and I heard, oh! I'm just kidding. I was upstairs. I heard, what the? Came downstairs to this incredible, I will never, ever forget. It's like imprinted in my mind forever. Smell. And of course, my wife says, clean it up, Peter. Okay. That's my job. That's my job. Took it outside. I'm telling, no, exactly. Our house must have smelled like for another day or two. You know what it's like. Let me give you another example. Your body, physical body, my physical body, inevitably aging, deteriorating. Sure, we can do all kinds of things to ward off this process, but inevitably our bodies are slowly, slowly, irreversibly, inevitably. Relationships, you want to hold on to those relationships forever and ever and ever. But family, tightest circle of friends. What do time and circumstances do? It is inevitably picking apart. It's inevitably going to separate you, remove you from one after the other. What's the point? Here's the point. You and I live in a culture. You and I live in a culture that sees suffering as what? You and I live in a culture that sees this inevitable process as what? An inconvenience. We see this as an inconvenience. We see this as something that just isn't right. We see all of these things as an anomaly, an injustice, something to avoid at all costs. Our culture says this inevitable suffering that's going to come to all of us, if you are smart enough, savvy enough, have enough money, you could keep yourself from it. Or some of us use the religious term, which is, if I'm good enough, I obey, like Byron shared, if rewards and, and, and punishment. If I do all of these things, then... In our culture, we have this mindset, we have this thinking that says that suffering, this inevitable thing that's going to come upon us is anomaly, inconvenience, and injustice. So when it does happen, we think life is mistreating us. We think God is mistreating us. We think something, somebody is mistreating us. And yet this text says everything that your heart, my heart longs for is like wave on a sand. It's receding inevitably. There's nothing that we can do. Is that depressing? This text is saying, if your posture is one of, I will do everything I can to, to avoid it. By the way, inevitably it'll hit you. Sometime right around your early 30s. So if you're not on your early 30s yet, don't worry. Inevitably, irrevocably, it will come. Can I get an amen from some of us older folks that know? It's coming. So here's the point. The Bible is saying if your posture is one of, when it comes, who's mistreating me? Why is this happening? I'm going to try and do everything possible. You will not have the resources to handle it. But the Bible says there are resources with this realistic view of the world that you have to handle it. What are they? Three. He gives us. That's not the sermon, by the way. That's sermon one of sermon four in this text. Okay, verse 23. He says, we eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope in what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here's resource number one. He says, we have resource in the future. And I can only spend one minute on this because we talk about this all the time. The Bible says that awaits us in the future is what? Not this ethereal, spiritual existence in this place called, quote-unquote, heaven. The Bible says what's awaiting us is what? Resurrection, restoration of this material world. 
What oasis is not compensation and consolation. There, there, you've suffered so much. But now don't you feel better? What awaits us, the Bible says, is resurrection, is restoration. That means that the family you long for, the body you long for, the thing that your heart genuinely, deeply longs for in this world that you cannot have, that you missed out on, the Bible says at the end of all things when God restores everything, the thing that our hearts long for will be resurrected, restored remade, beautified, perfectly. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. And like I said, we just need to do this one and then go on. Where's my quote by C.S. Lewis? Here it is. Some mortals say of temporal suffering that is now, no future bliss can make up for it. In other words, people who are suffering right now, they go, ah, when I get to heaven, so I'm in heaven, what's the big deal? Here's what he says. He says, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. You ever have the experience of losing something that you love and you cherish and have the experiences of finding it again? I lose things all the time in our house all the time. And the joy of finding that thing that you lost accentuates the joy because you lost it, because there's a moment when you have it, because it was taken from you. And the Bible says that all the suffering, all the evil, all the injustice in this world will be transmuted to a greater joy because there was a suffering. Does that make sense to you? What awaits us, Paul says, is that hope. Now we got to go on. Here's a second hope, Paul says, and it's found in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Paul says here's a resource not just in the future, but resource in the present, and the resource is prayer, to which you go, Of course, that's what you would say. You're a pastor. When you're suffering, you should pray. It'll make you feel better. You have no idea what this passage is saying. Do you know what this passage is saying? Listen, listen. The prayer that we're given here is Paul says, when we're weak and we do not what we ought to pray for, the Bible says the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And by the way, some of our charismatic friends go, oh, that's like speaking in tongues, right? Listen to the text. It's not, listen, us making a sound. Who's making the sound? Say it with me. Who's making the sound? The Spirit. That means that when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit, the Bible says, lays out our petitions before the throne, before God with groans that we cannot express. What does that mean? What does this mean? When I was uh, in college, I was dating this girl, and I thought for sure she was the one. And the relationship got to a point where it was clear that it was going to inevitably end. So you know why I prayed? I prayed what many of you prayed, which is, Lord, please let your will be done. (laughs) Of course, it's not what I pray. That's not what you pray. What did I pray? Lord, please what? Let this relationship work. Lord, please let this relationship work. Lord, I don't want to lose her. Lord, let this, please, please, please let this relationship work. I'll do anything if you let this relationship work. That's what I pray. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I pray, Lord. And in hindsight, it was an absolute stupid prayer. Why? Because if I married that girl, by the way, it wasn't Jenny. If I married that girl, my life would have been a disaster. It was clearly a good thing that God didn't answer their prayer. It was clearly a good thing that God didn't answer their prayer. Question. 
Did God answer my prayers though? The answer is yes. And the answer is no. In a way he did. In a way he didn't. Do you know that in prayer, listen carefully to this. There are two parts to prayer. Do you know there's a core part of the prayer? And then there's a stupid part of prayer. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, you all, maybe it's hot in here. Let me explain. The core part of prayer, let me use that example, is this. God, help me. The core part, the groan. I think that this relationship is what I need to be the man of God that you want me to be. I think this relationship is what I need to be the person that you want to be, God. This is what I need to experience the life of fulfillment, of joy, of hope. Of this is what I need, God. The groan. The stupid part is what? I need this girl to make that happen. This is the girl. I know it. This is the job. These are the circumstances. This is what I need. Now, every time we pray, all of us, there are some core prayers and there are some stupid prayers. Truth be told, majority of us, when we pray, we pray what? The stupid. This is the amazing thing about God. Listen to this. Wouldn't it be amazing if when we prayed, we always pray for the things that will truly make us great. We always prayed for the thing that will truly make us the man of God, the woman of God that we ought to be. Wouldn't it be great, put it another way, if we would always ask God for the things that are the core part of the prayers and leave the stupid part of the prayers? Wouldn't it be great if every time we prayed, and this amazing thing, God only heard and only answered the core grown part of our prayers and the stupid part of our prayers, God goes, that's dumb, so I'm not going to. Wouldn't it be great if you and I only ask God for, you and I only would come before God and we would ask God for the things that God knows is best for us, that God sees is infinite wisdom. Wouldn't it be great? Do you know what this is saying? This is saying we do have a God like that. This is saying we have a God like that. What do I mean? We have a God who intercedes for us so that when we pray with groans that says, God, genuinely, this is what I long for. I want to be the man of God. I want to be the woman of God. I want to experience the life you want me to be. But I need this. I need that. I need this to make it happen. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had a God who says, I'm hearing the core part of the prayers and the stupid part of the prayers. We have a God like that. Is that good news? This is amazing news that we have the Holy Spirit who stands before God interceding and says, God, no, Peter doesn't really mean that. What he really means is you have the best prayer partner in the universe who are praying for the core part of your prayers so that you can ultimately be the man of God, the woman of God that God wants you to be. And the stupid part of our prayers that we all come to, I need, I need, I need. God, in his wisdom and love, says, I know, child, but. We have a God that prays for us like that? You know what that means? That means what you and I come, and we're in the midst of suffering, and we're groaning and saying, God, this makes no sense to me. I don't know how this is going to work out. God, when we're groaning and saying, God, I'm going to. These are the things that I want. These are the things that I need, God. I don't need this right now. When we pray those things, we have a God who assures us and says you can go before God confidently because you have a God who will give you everything you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. You have a God who will give you everything you would have asked for. In other words... 
the Spirit makes sure that you pray in accordance with God's perfect will. I don't know how I'll get up in the morning and pray if this wasn't true. Because 90% of my prayers are stupid prayers. And 10% of my prayers are, oh, and God goes, I hear the groan. I know what your heart longs for. And I'm praying that for you too. Jeez. <laughs> Last resource is resource in, the, resource in the past. What do I mean? Resource in the past you actually have to jump a little bit to verse 17. Uh, we, we read this last week where it says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. You know what Paul is saying there? What is he saying? He says, you're not, it's not just that you're a Christian in spite of the suffering. That's how we read it sometimes. And he says, the suffering is a sign that you're a Christian. Do you notice that? He says, now if we share, if we share in the suffering, suffering is a sign that you are a follower of Jesus. But notice that it's a sharing in the sufferings that lead to sharing in his glory. Everybody, this may be one of the most important things that you and I need to hear all the time living in this culture. It's this truth that anyone who commits to following Jesus commits to entering into the pattern of the life of Christ. Everybody say pattern. Everybody say pattern. Pattern of the life. There's a pattern to the life of Christ. Christ's pattern, if you will. And the pattern was this. Cross before crown. Death before resurrection. Cross before crown. Death before resurrection. And Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow him. And this is, by the way, found throughout the New Testament. You've got to enter into. You've got to live into the reality of this pattern of cross before crown. Death before resurrection. Jesus, cross. He experiences rejection, humiliation, abandonment, injustice. His family doesn't understand him. His best friends leave him at the most critical hour of need. He's despised. He's rejected. He's a victim of injustice. One suffering after another. Cross. But at the end of his life, he stands on the cross and he says, not my will, yours be done. Throughout the process, his attitude is constantly, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, yours be done. He's faithful. He's trusting. He's obedient. As a result, the pattern of Christ is the cross leads to crown and death leads to resurrection. Church, it's one thing to sing all the right songs. It's one thing to believe intellectually, to assent to the truth of the gospel. I'm telling you right now, though, it's another thing entirely as a Christ follower to enter into this pattern of cross before crown, death before resurrection. It's another thing entirely for a follower of Jesus to say, I'm going to enter into the Christ pattern of death, resurrection, weakness, leading to strength. But here's the good news. You ready? The Bible says that when you enter into this pattern, the Christ pattern of cross before crown, of death before resurrection, when you enter into this pattern, the things that actually come into your life change you and change me. How? Death leads to resurrection. Weakness leads to strength. Any physical trainers among us? 
Some of you, you need to explain this to me. I've experienced it. When you're working out, doing arm curls or whatever, you reach that moment when you're going, I can't lift another pound. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Your muscles are completely shot and worn out. Question, at that moment, are you getting stronger or are you getting weaker? Are you getting stronger or are you getting weaker? And the Bible throughout the New Testament says over and over again, in that moment when you're going, I'm spent, I'm exhausted, I'm suffering, I can't do anything, the Bible says, it's in that moment that you are what? Getting stronger and stronger. Let me give you two passages, and I don't know, Nate, if they were up here, but I'm going to just read it for you, pay attention. Romans 5, 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's important because the Bible doesn't say we rejoice for our sufferings. As a Christian, it's not spiritual masochism. I'm suffering. Whee! He says, no, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. James 1, 2, consider it my joy, pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish this work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in any thing. Weakness leading to strength. Let me give you another example. Acorns, acorns, acorn. A single acorn has a power and potential in and of itself as it goes into the ground to become an enormous acorn tree with hundreds of other acorns that could produce hundreds of other acorn trees with hundreds of other acorns. In other words, a single acorn has the power to cover the entire earth. But that acorn cannot grow into its potential unless it goes into the ground and dies. Do you know what the Bible says over and over again? God says, you are creating the image of God. You have potential for greatness. You have potential for joy. You have potential for compassion, kindness, love that you can't even imagine. You have potential for amazing amazing things but that potential unless it goes into the soil of difficulty and trial and dies you cannot become the person God sees for you unless it grows into the soil of difficulty Simply put, unless we go into the soil of dying to our pride, dying to our self-sufficiency, dying to our independence, the Bible says you cannot become the person that God wants you to be. But if you share in his sufferings, that's what this is saying. If you share in his sufferings, if you follow his pattern of death and resurrection, if you go through it looking at him, if you go through it remembering him, following him, believing in him, trusting in him, what happens? You become a diamond under all that pressure. He came and suffered not so that we might not suffer, so that in our sufferings we might become like who? Him. Do you know this? Do you know this? Verse 28. 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. To all all of God's people said, what does this verse mean? What does this verse mean? I broke it down into three parts. One, in all things, God works for the good. Everybody say God. Does Paul say here that everything sort of works for the good by themselves? Then why do we act like it? Why is it sometimes we walk around going, you know what? When good things happen, I sort of expect it to happen. I sort of expect that good things happen. And the Bible says what? The Bible says that whenever good things happen, whenever factors in life turn out for good, who's responsible? God the Father makes the factors of our life turn out for good. I say this all the time. I'm going to say it again. How you handle suffering and how you handle hardships and trials determine whether you are truly gospel-believing or religious or irreligious. Religious people, when suffering comes, our attitude is, God, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? Why? I've been good. I've obeyed. I've done all the right things. So we're either mad at God or we're actually mad at ourselves and we're going, as, as Byron said, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough of a person. Why is this happening to me? God must be punishing me. Can I just tell you something? Anytime a thought enters your mind that when you go through something that God is punishing, you remember that jesus christ paid the penalty for our punishment once and for all it's done it's nailed to the cross god cannot receive a second payment it's done it's finished no more punishment coming away to the child of god is that good news no more no more when we fear and we say god why are you punishing me the bible says go to the cross where you will see that jesus christ once and for all died and paid the penalty for our sins The Bible says that whenever things work out, it's because God is responsible. And that means when Christians, when you, look, we have this unique perspective. We're very realistic because when suffering comes, when hardships come, we're not surprised. We're not furious. We're not angry. We're not, we're sitting there going, we live in a fallen world that's being redeemed and going to be restored by our Heavenly Father once and for all, one day. But living in a fallen world, that means that when things work out for our good, it doesn't just happen accidentally, but that a loving Heavenly Father who is in control of all things is working for our good so that anything that happens to us that is good in our lives is all God, all grace, all the time. To which God's people said, oh, guys, in all things, God works for good. Secondly, in all things... God works for the good. You know what that means? That means two things. Number one, it means that somehow God takes what we would call tragic things or even senseless things and makes good come out of it. Look, whenever you and I go, God, how can you make tragedy and senseless things and make good come out of it? First and foremost, God is never the author of evil. God is never the author of injustice. Everyone who is responsible for evil and injustice will be held responsible on the day of judgment. The Bible's clear about that. But God is never the author of evil. But look what God does. God says he takes even the most profound example of tragedy the most profound example of senseless act in the history of mankind the crucifixion of the perfect son of god and god says out of that came life out of that came resurrection out of that came redemption and glory and forgiveness in all things god says he works for the good for me this week, as I was thinking about this, I realized that in all things, I don't means tragedy and senseless things, but also means our rebellion and our sin. Can I just ask a question? Is anybody glad here that our rebellion and our sin 
is somehow taken by God and woven in for his greater purpose, his glory, and for our good. Does that amaze anybody? Is that good news to anybody? Is it good news to anybody that there's no plan B for God for your life? Did you hear what I said? When you and I, rebellion, sin, it doesn't catch God by surprise where God goes, whoa, Peter, what, what, what was that about? Well, what was that? Holy Spirit, Jesus, come together. We got, we got to come up with another plan for this guy because he totally screwed up. God says, there's no plan before your life. There's nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do, not even our rebellion and our sin could thwart God's purposes for our lives. Is that good news? Somebody needs to hear that this morning. You hear this morning going, you don't know what I've done. I have done some tragic. I have done some senseless. I have done some things that I am so regretting. And Peter, is there a purpose? Is there something that God could do even with this life? And the Bible says, God weaves somehow even our sin and our rebellion, all things for our good and for his glory. That's awesome news. And third, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. John Newton says this, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. That means if you're sitting here today and going, God, how does that make any sense? How is that possibly going to work out for my good and for your glory? God, I really needed that. I really need you to come through on that. The Bible says in reality, God absolutely says you didn't need it. And if something comes into your life and you go, God, this is the worst timing in the world. This is the worst possible timing in the world. How can this possibly result in any good? God in his infinite wisdom and love says, I purposed it because it's playing some important role in your life. Do you know how I translate Romans 8, 28? In all things, God for the good of those who love him, call him to their purpose. I translate Romans 8, 28 this way. God will give you, I said earlier, everything you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew, and if you saw everything he saw. And that's amazing news. And if you're sitting there going, how can I trust him? How can I trust him to do that? How can I trust God will do that? The cross. The cross. You could do that because of the cross. Because the cross is God's infinite, eternal, once for life statement to us that says, you can trust me in the midst of this. Sit there going, you tell my boss that, man, because my boss completely... Trust me, your boss can't ruin God's perfect plan for your life. Well, you tell that girl that because what she said to me, trust me, some girl saying no to you, some guy saying no to you, some circumstances in your life that says, this is going to ruin God's plan. Nothing in all creation can ruin God's perfect plan for you. Nothing. 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 But do me a favor, though. If you're still at the company, don't go to your boss and go, you can't ruin God's plan for my life. Because <laughs> then he may just go, well, I just ruined it two weeks earlier for you then, okay? <laughs> Romans 28, 29, let's get going. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I love that. There's so much on there. So I'm going to have to just kind of shorten it and say this. Do you have a personal relationship with God today? Do you know God? Do you know how it happened? Imagine a relationship with God like a door. A door. You're coming, and as you want to enter into a relationship with God, you see at the front of the door this passage. It says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. 
In other words, the Bible says, if you want a relationship with God, you want to walk through that door, you have to acknowledge Christ as Lord. You have to accept what Christ has done on your behalf and believe it. Trust him. Do what you need to do in order for you to enter that door relationship with God. There's something that you do. You need to respond to the gospel message. But if you actually do acknowledge and you walk through the door, you turn around and guess what you see? John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. If there's anybody sitting here who moved that door at some point and you walked into this relationship with God, you realize, and this is all Paul's saying, that God predestined, that God called, those God called, God justified, those he justified, he also glorified. In spite of all the work that you and I do, in spite of all the commitment it took, instead of the sweat, all the sweat that it took to make that commitment, when you actually get through that door, you look back and you go, what? It was God. I didn't go searching for God. Did you? I didn't go looking for God. I was minding my own business, doing my own thing. Thank you very much. How many of you, this is your testimony? I didn't go saying, God, I, because I'm good, because I'm spiritual, because I'm vowing for truth. I wasn't looking for God. God came to me. God came and got me. God came and invaded my life and said, you're mine. That's how it happened for all of us. We didn't go looking for, do you know what that means? If that's how God started this, and he is the author of that faith, the Bible also says he is the what? Perfecter as well. That means that every high of highs and every low of lows and everything in between our lives, the person who started it also said, I'm going to finish it. And everything that happens in between, including suffering a child, is to perfect my work in you. So you could rest assured. Do you see why this is so, this is why it's so powerful for those that are going through suffering and trial. The Bible says the author is the perfecter and everything, the highs and lows and everything in between, God is at work. Why though, Peter, ultimately, I don't know why. You won't know why until we get to heaven. But God says everything is to perfect my work in you. Is this good news? How else would you and I get up in the morning and go about our day? If it was up to you and I to perfect this work in us, I wouldn't get out of bed. If it was up to you and I to somehow get this truth, because you know what? I work myself into it, which means I can work myself out of it. Good Lord, I wouldn't get out of bed. But God says, I started it. I'm going to perfect it. <sighs> That's an amen and amen and amen and amen. All right, let's finish this. Check this out. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also? You know what? Can you all read this with me? And you know what? When you read this, excuse me, read it like you, read it like I would read it. Okay? Read it. Read it like I would read. I'm serious. Read it like, like, read it like as you're reading it, like this is the most amazing thing you have ever heard. Because once you realize what it means, you just, oh, here we go. Verse 31. Because this isn't Paul, by the way, going, what then shall we say? This is Paul. And I see him as a spaz, just like me. I see him going, oh, God works for the good and all, the author, perfecter. 
Ready? Here we go. Verse 31. Ready? Here we go. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those to whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! Man. You know what Paul is saying? Did that energize someone? Seriously. I just remind. Paul is saying there's a joy to be had. There's a joy to be had. This is the last five minutes you'll hear from me for the next six, seven weeks, so listen carefully. He says, this is a joy to be had. There's tremendous joy to be had. I cut out like half the sermon, but that's okay. There's a joy to be had. What does Paul say? He says, there's a joy to be had. Why? Because you can face anything in life without sinking or crumbling. And this joy and the source of it is this truth. Very simple. God not only loves you now, but he always will. That's what he's saying. God not only loves you now, but he always will. And there's two things that he says right here, okay? One is, God will always love you regardless of what bad stuff is happening inside of you. And the second thing he says, verse 35, verse is, God will always love you no matter what the bad stuff is happening outside of you. First of all, what bad stuff is happening inside of you? We've been talking about this. You and I have terrible thoughts that go through our minds, yes? Yes. <laughs> Rigorous honesty. This is the reason why when you and I become a Christian, we go, I'm saved by grace. Thank you for the cross. I'm saved by grace. Whatever, right? And then what happens? We do something that's absolutely, whoa. And we don't go, but I'm saved by grace. Thank you, Jesus. Those thoughts haunt us. They haunt us. We hear Satan go, condemnation. Paul's saying, charges. We hear Satan go, you are so pathetic. You are so, you're a Christian. You have eating disorders and nobody knows. You're a Christian and you're addicted to pornography. You're a Christian and you're sleeping with your girlfriend boy. You're a Christian. And we don't go, I know, but I'm saved by grace and I'm going to repent and change. We go, oh, why? Because you don't ultimately believe experientially what you believe intellectually, which is you are saved by the infallible, unconditional, unmerited love of God. And that can never be taken away from you. But those thoughts haunt you. And they haunt me. That's why some of you are sitting here today and you're going, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. That's why you walk away from that. We sit there and go, they haunt us. And what does the Bible say? Paul says what? No matter what stuff is happening inside you, 
no matter what charges, condemnation come against you. He says what? It is Christ who justifies. Who will bring a charge? God is literally saying, I wouldn't listen to the voice of that one. Do you know what I'm going to do to that one? I'm going to torture him and torment him and cast him away forever in hell. That's what I'm going to do to that one. That's Satan, by the way. And God says, when those thoughts come and haunt you, remember that there's nothing that we did. It's not based on our righteousness and our works, but on the righteousness of Christ. And so therefore, there is forevermore no condemnation. No matter what is happening inside of us, God says, I will always love you. Secondly, no matter what's happening outside of us. Listen to what he says. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Everything that you could possibly think of of circumstances. So when bad things happen inside of us, we go, I'm such a mess. Why would God love me? When things are happening outside of us, we go, the world is such a mess. Why would God love me? And when these things come, we ultimately go always to the place of, God, do you love me? If you really love me, why would you let this happen? I've actually heard some people say this. You know what? Nothing can separate you from God, but you could separate yourself from God. How many of you heard that before? Listen. Somebody, some people say, nothing can separate you from God, but you can separate yourself from God. Here's what I want you to tell that person. Read Romans 8, 37, 39 and go, oh, there's a part. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. And ask them this question, are you a part of creation? Last time I checked, yes, you are part of creation. Bible says nothing in all of creation. So it's not just, well, I, God will not separate, but I can separate myself. Even you and all the things that you do cannot separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not just now, but what? Forevermore. Nothing. What are you going through? Hardships, trials, famine, nakedness, sore. The Bible says God's love is so powerful that God will keep you facing him, loving him, keeping you in his arms no matter what. The assurance, no amount of powers of evil inside you, no amount of powers of evil outside you can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Carlton, come on up. We're going to finish. I want to leave you with the gospel. Is that okay? I've been preaching the gospel throughout. But how do you know? How can you personalize it? Because half of us, maybe this half, we go, I know it, Peter, intellectually. I know it conceptually. I kind of know it, you know, sort of theoretically. But it isn't effective in my life. It isn't the kind of, as I read Romans 8, blow me away. Absolutely just blow me away. That's the love of God kind of way. How do I personalize it? You have to personalize it by going to the gospel. What do I mean? Jesus is on the cross. And bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb is coming at him. Bomb of hardship, bomb of trial, bomb of persecution, bomb of, bomb of sword, bomb of nakedness, bomb of famine, bomb of justice of God, bomb of wrath of God. Bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb is coming on Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. And all he needed to do was one thing and he would have stopped it all. One thing Jesus could have done that said he could have stopped the whole thing. And that one thing was to drop you and me. That's all he needed to do to stop the bomb after bomb after bomb coming on him. That's all he needed to do was say, Father, no more. For them, ah, too hard, too painful. But he stayed. He stayed. All he needed to do was say, no. Father, it's too hard. But he stayed. He stayed. 
bomb of hardship, bomb of persecution. He stayed. If that didn't separate you from God's love, you think you having a bad week is going to separate you from God's love. If that didn't separate him from his love for you, you think you having a bad year is going to separate his love from you. All he needed to do was to stop it was say, God, I'm done. And oh, by the way, those of you going, I'm discouraged. I feel hopeless right now because you know what, Peter? I really need these things and God just isn't coming through. Let me ask you something. He who did not spare his own son, how would he not with him give us all things? Simply, if that's God's extravagant love for you, you think he doesn't love you because you don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend or the job that you want? my favorite hymn and we're going to end with this hymn this hymn was written by a guy named Horatius Spafford Horatius Spafford was a wealthy Chicago lawyer actually with a thriving legal practice a beautiful home, wife, four daughters and a son Horatius Spafford was also a devout Christian and a faithful student of the scriptures his circle of friends in Chicago Included D.L. Moody, Ira Sankey, and various other well-known Christians of the day. At the very height of his financial professional success, Horatio and his wife Anna suffered the tragic loss of their young son. Shortly thereafter, on October 8, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed almost every real estate investment that Spafford had. In 1873, Spafford scheduled a boat trip to Europe in order to give his wife and daughters a much-needed vacation and time to recover from the tragedy. He was later to join Moody and Sankey on an evangelistic campaign in England. Spafford sent his wife and daughters ahead of him while he remained in Chicago to take care of some unexpected last-minute business. Several days later, he received a notice that his family's ship had been encountered a tr- collision All four daughters drowned. Only his wife survived. With a heavy heart, Spafford boarded a boat that would take him to his grieving Anna in England. And the story goes that he told one of the shipmen, when we get to that place where my daughters drown, I want you to wake me up. And the story goes that when the shipmen woke him up on the spot is when he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say. It is well. It is well. With my soul.